It's the Mixed Martial Arts Hour with Ugh, cut the music. Makes you sick to your stomach to hear that foul abomination. Unbelievable. On the co-main event podcast. But don't adjust your make-believe internet radio dials. In fact, the co-main event podcast is back in your life this week. I'm your co-host from ESPN.com, Chad Dundas. And joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie and USAToday.com, it's Ben Folks. And Ben, this past weekend, or week, I suppose, we lost a bet. Yeah, we did. We lost it bad, too. I suppose people who either don't follow us on Twitter or don't snoop into our normal lives might be a little bit confused as to why they fired up the CME this week, only to find the terrible taco stand music that Ooh. generally accompanies Ooh, burn. Ariel Helwani's. Well, it does. It. I mean, let's be honest. We like Ariel, but the music makes his show sound like a food truck. Yeah, and uh, unlike uh, the CME, I bet he didn't even make those beats himself. Yeah, no, I I assume he did not. Uh, you know, it actually reminds me of when I used to work in the mall uh, right after high school when I was oh, 18. I these at, stories are always good. At the Greek Euro Cafe uh, in, in the Southgate Mall, and we were supposed to only play traditional Greek music in there, mm-hmm. but we were 18, so... There was no way we were going to do that. So you would interpret Operation Ivy as traditional Greek music. Well, we had two cassette tapes in the back of the store that were not traditional Greek music. And one of them was Paul Simon's Graceland. (laughs) Okay. And the other one was the best of the Gypsy Kings. And so we, frankly, listened to the shit out of those tapes. (laughs) So we didn't have to listen to the traditional Greek music you might even say we let those tapes rock until those tapes popped, wow. as the notorious B.I.G. would say. But every time I hear either the intro or outro music to the MMA Hour with Ariel Hawani, it reminds me of when I used to work in the mall because that's what their music sounded like. And does being reminded of when you used to work in the mall make you want to go out and ask a girl who works at the Sara Lee cookie shop out on a date? Because I know that was your... That was no, my other favorite Chad Dunn's working know, in the mall story. Because that didn't go that well the first <laughs> time around. So I think we're going to give that a miss the second time. Anyway, we made this bet with, with Ariel Helwani. Yeah. Uh, and God, you know, it's not like I thought that the Montana Grizzlies were the favorite to beat Syracuse. Syracuse, kind of a basketball powerhouse uh, under investigation by the NCAA, I believe, which is always a bad sign. I mean, you want to play a team right when they're coming off. NCAA investigation when they're crippled by sanctions. Right. You don't so, want to play them while they're under investigation. We made a bet with Helwani that the that the Montana Grizzlies would defeat the Syracuse Orange. Awesome name, by the way. Yeah, way to go, Syracuse. Uh, in the first round of the NCAA men's college basketball tournament. As it turned out, the plucky underdog Montana Grizzlies totally got their fucking guts stomped out by Syracuse. 81 to 34, the it, final score. It was one of the least competitive basketball contests I have ever seen. And this coming from a guy who used to cover Montana high school basketball. Yeah, and it wasn't even like, you know, over the course of the game, Syracuse proved to be the superior team. It was right away. Oh, yeah. No, within the first, I would say, 30 seconds, you knew that we were in for a rough ride there. And uh, then for the rest of the game, Syracuse pretty much wore Montana around like a hat. Yeah. 
Just just like a button, like a button on their shirts. So anyway, the terms of that bet were that we had to use Ariel Helwani's music throughout this week's uh, podcast. So you heard it on the intro. You'll hear it again on the outro. And about halfway through the show, we're going to do a special segment, another one of Helwani's stipulations for this bet. Which I think tells you something about the man that when he stipulates terms of the bet... He demands that we do a segment devoted to him. And this, a week after we just talked about how he was a good journalist, isn't that enough? Never again. Never again. Uh, so yeah, the middle of the show, we'll be doing a, uh, a segment dedicated to Ariel Helwani. I guess it's kind of a secret. Yeah, you're going to want to stick around for it. Let's say that. Just leave that uh, as a surprise for the middle of the show. Um, but in addition to that, this week, since we're in kind of a drought between uh, UFC shows, we're going to do another one of our All Questions Considered episodes of the co-main event podcast where you the listener submitted all of your questions this week uh at the website comaineventpodcast.com we got a an unbelievable ass load of them and so basically we're, we're just going to answer these questions that you submitted to us uh and uh we'll go from there we'll see how many we get through because i guarantee we're not getting through all of them yeah. but we're going to get through as many as we can uh ben do you want to kick us off what's your first I'll, question I'll kick us off. this question comes from warren who writes, what is it about Nick Diaz that gets his fans so damn passionate? I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a huge Nick and Nate Diaz fan, and I'm a Canadian. If you guys hit the peg, then the beers are on me. I think Winnipeg? That's what he's talking about? Where UFC 160-something is? Home of the Blue Bombers. Okay. Anyway, I got into a little argument with my buddy who was pulling for GSP, and at the end he asked, why do you like Diaz so much anyway? To tell you the truth, I couldn't give him a good answer. It's not just because he bucks the system. I always cheer for big country, but I fucking hate Tito, so that can't be it. <laughs> and it can't be just because he is a little different, because there are so many different types of personalities in MMA. Just wondering, in your professional opinions, what the fuck is up with that? Why are Diaz fans so damn passionate about those dudes? You know, that's a good question, but it is true. Like, yeah. the, if you, in in a, a column or a story or even a live chat utter what may be considered even a, a, a possible slight at the Diaz brothers. Oh, brother, you are going to hear about it from their fans. And w during one ESPN live chat, I got harangued by this guy just because he felt like I wasn't being positive enough about the <laughs> Diaz brothers. I hadn't said anything negative. It's just he didn't feel like I was giving them their due. And so they do inspire this weird passion and this this sort of like fanatical following and i honestly don't know what it is except that as we've talked about on the podcast before you know especially when nick talks it's hard to look away yeah even when he's not making sense and even you know when you feel like he's saying things that maybe are not in his own best interests well, it's still something that you have to watch the diaz's aren't the only ones who evoke that reaction uh bj penn has the same thing with with a lot of his fans uh fedor had the same thing with a lot of his fans, and it seemed to just kind of embarrass Fedor more than anything. I think it's the the guys who don't seem to really care that much, if you like them. Something about that attracts a certain kind of person who then feels like they have to take it up they have to take up that mantle, take it upon themselves to So you feel like it's that they're playing hard to get. Maybe a little bit. Huh, yeah, it's interesting. That's not the response I expected, but maybe there's something to that. And I mean, Nick is just a really fun fighter to watch. So I, I mean, just competitively inside the cage, I can see how you'd be into the guy. Second question this week comes to us from Barry Williams, who writes, which UFC fighter would you most like to have as a neighbor and why? And then he adds as a caveat, 
women not included. <laughs> okay. Which kind of sucks because I feel like if you live next door to Misha Tate, she would probably always be bringing cupcakes over and shit because it seems like she is always baking. Yeah, and I mean, I, I can see how maybe eventually that could become a problem with all the cupcakes, but... Uh, Plus, Brian Caraway would be over there all the time. You can yeah. chat over the top of the fence with him while he's out working in his garden. Yeah, you talk lawnmowers and fertilizer and stuff with Brian Caraway. That'd be fun. You know, I'm going to say Vanderlei Silva. Okay, why? Just seems like Vanderlei, as long as you have not signed a contract to fight him, he is a super nice dude. Uh, also seems like... We could have these kind of conversations over the fence, and I could just kind of nod and pretend that I understand what he's saying, and then go go about my business, and and it won't matter. It'll be okay, right? <laughs> you know. Now, see, I'm going to say that the only correct answer here is Pat Militich, and let me tell you why. No, oh, so one, we're going to just you you interpreted that no, question actually, pretty broadly. No, I think that. Uh, Actually, I do think Vanderlei Silva is a good answer, but I would most like to live next door to Pat Militich because, number one, he's going to be quiet. He's going to keep <laughs> to himself. He's not going to be having any ragers over there like when Ronda Rousey's parents go out of town. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I uh, don't know. What if, uh, you know, Rick Santorum becomes president? He's yeah, having I was gonna a say, rager The then. wildest night over at Militich's house is going to be election night, right? <laughs> you know he's going to keep an eye on the neighborhood. So, <laughs> yeah, like, if true. you have to go out of town... Pat Milicic is definitely the kind of dude who's going to come over and be like, uh, so some weird guys were poking around in your backyard. Don't worry, I took some photos of them. Here they are. <laughs> and so I feel like, you know, Milicic, he's going to stay out of your business. And yet at the same time, he's going to be good for a, a, a short encounter, a brief conversation if you, when you ever you see him coming and going. And if you need to borrow some guns, he can probably help you out there. Also, if you're outside, say, doing any yard work, Maybe you're trying to get a tree out, you know, trying to take a tree out of your backyard. Trying to get that tree out, bud? Exactly. You know Militich is going to come over and lend a hand, especially if you're talking to him and you're like, yeah, this tree's just too big. I don't think one person could possibly get it out of the ground by themselves. I think we're probably going to have to go get a tractor or something. Yeah. Militich is hopping that fence and tearing that tree out all by himself just to show you he could do it. Yeah. I don't even think Barack Obama himself could get this tree out of here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is over in a heartbeat. <laughs> What's your next question over there? Uh, next question comes from Josh Carey, who writes, skipping all of the pre-show drama, drum, drama, maybe? That's I don't maybe know. what the kids are saying. I think it's safe to say that even after watching World Series of Fighting, it's pretty clear that they have a ton of shit to work on. Yes. Todd Harris makes Goldie look like a god among men, and <laughs> Boss was not on his A-game. Whoever the lady was that was doing interviews, she tried, but clearly not the best they could do. As far as production goes, during the online prelims, they didn't cut audio so you could hear crew and announcers shooting the shit, which could lead to, you know, uh, someone dropping a fuck or saying something bad about the promotion itself. As fun as some of the fights were, I couldn't help but be overwhelmed by the sloppiness of the production as a whole. Could this be one of the things that really hinders World Series of Fighting as being taken as a serious contender in the MMA business? I know there are problems that are more serious, like talent and matchmaking, but for me, sloppy presentation can't last. They need to figure who they use... Uh, and how they go about the production, which I will admit is easier said than done. What are your thoughts on production issues and the World Series of Fighting as a whole? On a scale of Roy Nelson clearing out a buffet versus Rumble making 135 and taking out the monster Hen and Barrow, what are their long-term chances? Thanks, guys, and sorry if this question jumps around more than House of Pain. <laughs> wow, okay. Well, I'm glad that he added that footnote in there because as bad as the World Series of 
fighting production values can be, I feel like the main hindrance toward them being a contender to the UFC is the fact that they're booking shit like Rumble Johnson against Andre Arlovsky at heavyweight. Like, and the ghost of Paulo Filo showing up to sleepwalk through a fight. Because if that's the best you can do for a main event fight where one dude comes out clearly wearing a UFC glove uh, and he's mm-hmm. fighting a, a, a jumped up middleweight, I guess you could say, oh, and by the way, losing to a middleweight, that alone makes you seem pretty Bush League. It's not like you're going to throw that on pay-per-view and suddenly be competing with St. Pierre Diaz in terms of buys. Well, that's the thing, though. I mean, the World Series of Fighting has to have a, a thing. You know, like, if you're not going to be the UFC, and you can't because the UFC is already the UFC, and we've seen what's happened to the organizations who start out and immediately just try and throw money at it until they can become a, a competitor. That doesn't work. Bellator is succeeding by having the, the tournament as their thing. You know, that's what you tune in for, and then new fighters will rise through the tournament thing and people will be able to follow along. World Series of Fighting needs a thing. Maybe their thing is crazy matchups that don't make any sense. Like, could that Can that be a th- your thing? That could be a thing. Okay. You know, Andre Olofsky versus a middleweight. Boom. You know, that, that could be your thing maybe. But I got to say too, the... It made me think when I was watching the World Series of Fighting and all the kind of sloppy production stuff. And come on, it was sloppy. I mean, there's one point where we come back into a round 15 seconds into it, you know, just because we had to see one more Jayco commercial for some reason. Uh, and it made me think of what you were saying about Invicta before, that when Invicta's pay-per-view stream didn't really work out when they tried it the first time and how – we were trying to decide what to make of Invicta. Is Invicta this small-time organization that we're all trying to support? And, hey, they're going to have some little hiccups along the way, but they're small-time, so we overlook it. It's not like it's the UFC or something. Or are they big-time, as big-time as you know we act like they are when we we're covering them? If so, then this is a huge fucking problem. We should talk about that the same way we would talk about it if the UFC put on a, you know, a, a FX cable fight night and it was just littered with production problems. So... It's kind of the thing with World Series of Fighting. How seriously are we taking them? How seriously are they telling us to take them with those kinds of problems? Yeah, not very seriously. One of my favorite things about MMA as it's currently constituted, though, is that right now we're at this point in the sports history where NBC Sports Network is interested enough in MMA that they will put it on there, but the sport is still you know, young enough that the broadcast can be a train wreck. So that kind of shit gets on TV, which... If you don't have a if you don't have a dog in the fight, that's just well, fun, man. Yeah. That's just fun stuff. Yeah, well, especially to watch. You know, Boss Rutten, I like the guy. He's a lot of fun. A little bit of a freewheeling kind of guy on the mic, and that's gonna get him in trouble at times, especially in that role, uh, which it did. Like when he goes in there and asks uh, Justin Gaethje if, if uh, he wants to to fight John Fitch next, and he's like, "What are you talking about? We're not even in the same weight class." <laughs> Uh, the next question this week comes from Brian Coughlin. The UFC has been cutting fighters because they're, quote, super fucking expensive. They recently capped the fight night bonuses at $50,000. What's going on here? Is the UFC experiencing financial difficulties behind the scenes? Are they strapped for cash? Well, I don't know how strapped for cash they could be, uh, considering that, I mean, if, if you're putting on a pay-per-view and you're selling 800,000 buys or whatever they say that, or People are saying that they sold with Nick Diaz and George St. Pierre. How bad could it be? Plus, they were supposed to just get that big influx of cash from signing the, the Fox deal. Although, you know, I think the, the, the question brings up a good point, though, because 
when things were going so terribly last year in terms of injuries and how it felt like there were just too many shows and, and there was this sort of glut of UFC programming all along, all we heard about how it was how awesome everything was going, you know, from inside the company. And now suddenly at the beginning of 2013, they're talking about how they cut need to cut all these fighters and they are, in fact, capping the fight night bonuses, although they didn't really reduce them. Like 50 grand is 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 a good hunk of change and, and I feel like was sort of a standard for um, at least some of the, the, the smaller shows but it does kind of feel like what is going on here are they is there some belt tightening going on from the ufc but you know i, I don't think we really need to worry in, until the, we start to see them make kind of wholesale sea changes in the way they do things they're still forging forward in terms of international expansion you know they're still very active in terms of uh of lobbying, I guess you would say, uh, in government. So as long as, as they're, they're still able to keep up all of these different fronts of advancement that they have in different areas, I'm not worried. Maybe we should, uh, ask the Vegas blackjack dealers to keep an eye on Dana White's wagers and that will tell us. Yeah. If he uh, suddenly starts playing at the $10 tables instead of the $100,000, yeah, I don't know. Our <laughs> yeah. next question comes from Darcy LeDrew who writes, I've always had a lot of faith in Rashad Evans. I believe with a proper corner and a full training camp, he has a serious shot against anyone at 205. He has powerful wrestling, strong hands, and can execute an airtight game plan. That confidence has been shaken since his dismal performance at UFC 156. I am wondering if his performance against Henderson will rebrand him as a gatekeeper if he is unsuccessful. As a longtime fan, I hope Rashad Evans finds his fire again and changes camp if necessary. Yeah, I agree. I always felt like Rashad Evans was one of the more unfairly hated on fighters yes, in the UFC. Definitely. And I felt like he was, in fact, hated on just because people didn't necessarily like his vibe. You know, he would show up wearing those, those like, uh, uh, big sunglasses and there'd be the slow motion scenes of him like getting out of the fancy car and walking into the tough training center. Well, I did too, but I feel like (laughs) sometimes it rubbed people the wrong way. Uh, you know, he had the, 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 the times earlier in his career where he appeared to be sort of cocky and mocking his opponent inside the cage and was famously told by Matt Hughes, I wouldn't want him on my team during the season of the ultimate fighter that he was on. But, you know, I've always felt like he had good skills and obviously the, the biggest, uh, his biggest negative is probably his chin. I think we've seen at this point. He's a, he's a guy that if he gets hit, uh, doesn't always respond to it well. Um, and I agree with Darcy that I hope he gets back, you know, on, on track because, and this, this fight against Henderson is a big one for him. And it's one that, uh, if it goes Rashad's way, he could, I could certainly see him winning it, but it's also going to be one where he's going to have to make sure he doesn't get touched on the face by Dan Henderson. Well, the thing I was wondering is the, the, Question, if he, is he going to become a gatekeeper in the UFC if he's unsuccessful? If the UFC is cutting guys who are super fucking expensive and we know that Rashad has, has had his disagreements with Dana White over the years, if he loses, he, the situation could be a lot more dire for him than just being a gatekeeper in the UFC. He yeah. could be out of a job. So yes, maybe the stakes are a little bit higher than we, than we realize. But I mean, it, I hope not because like you said, I, I feel like he's unfairly hated on. And I wonder if maybe one of the reasons that that opinion seems more prevalent in the media than among fans is because we've actually gotten to talk to him and he's an awesome dude to interview. Uh, once you talk to him, you know, I, I think it's really hard not to like the guy. Uh, I wonder if maybe the fans who just kind of get, you know, an image, maybe they don't like his swag as you, as you suggest, uh, 
maybe they're deprived of that. Who knows? Next question this week comes from Jeremy. He writes, what do you think it says to fighters under contract when they see the president of the UFC openly talk about how he knows his main event fighter is still using the drug he tested positive for, but just hopes he cycled it out of his system in time for the fight? I understand pot is a real gray area and Nick Diaz has a prescription that is valid somewhere. But is that really the message Dana should be sending fighters? Using drugs is fine. Just make sure you've got it out of your system come fight time. I think with this drug, it's hard for me to get too worked up about it. I mean, the whole thing about Nick Diaz's marijuana use was not particularly encouraging, especially when at the press conference he acted like, yeah, man, I hope I hope I don't test positive for it. But if I do, sorry. <laughs> that was not exactly the the vote of of confidence that you wanted to hear from the main event guy. I agree. You, but at the same time, shouldn't even be tested for pot. Come on. What are we doing? That's true. But it's, it does bring up a weird situation. I agree with the, the, with Jeremy who asked the question when pretty much everybody leading up to the UFC is essentially admitting not, not only in private, but fuck just in public during a press conference on stages with microphones in front of them that, Hey, we know that this dude smoked a ton of weed leading up to this fight. And we just hope that he, uh, doesn't test positive for it because well, uh, Calls into question the whole edifice of the of drug testing. It does, but what's the alternative for us to all pretend like we don't know that? Because that's that would be bullshit. We all know what's going on at the Diaz household after training sessions, before training sessions, in the car during you know a break <laughs> or during a training session. We all know what the hell's going on there. So I guess I would rather see us all just be honest about it uh, than you know pretend. That somehow Nick Diaz hasn't been openly talking about how he beats drug tests for like the last three or four years. Uh, next question comes from Eli, who writes, and this is another Diaz-related question. In an interview leading up to UFC 158, Dana White mentioned that Caesar Gracie was, quote, a huge part of the problem in reference to the handling of Nick Diaz's media obligations, then acknowledged Gracie's abilities as a trainer. Do you think that there is a conflict of interest when a person acts as both head trainer and manager for a fighter? I don't think it's a conflict of interest per se, because, I mean, I guess technically you are only looking out for the interests of the fighter still and yeah. the interests of yourself. Uh, I think the problem, the problem with the Caesar Gracie relationship is not necessarily that it's a conflict of interest. The problem is that sometimes you feel like it's the blind leading the blind a little bit. Uh, and also the fact that Nick and Nate have both been in that camp for so long. They've both grown up with Caesar Gracie. Uh, he, he's a mentor and maybe even a father figure type guy for them. And you feel like because of that relationship, and maybe because he's he's had so many years of trying to get them to do things the right way, quote unquote, uh, as much as Caesar Gracie is going to try to do that, uh, that at this point he feel you feel a little bit like he's thrown up his hands and been like, ah, well, fuck it, you know, they, I can't do anything with these guys. You can't take them anywhere. He's basically said that he has thrown up his hands and said, fuck it, in in some, sen in some so sense. So the problem to me is not that it's a conflict of interest. The problem to me is that. Maybe get someone a little bit more professional in there. Yeah, I would say based on uh, my experiences watching fighters and the way they interact with trainers and, and managers over the years, that it's probably not a great idea usually to have the same guy doing both. Um, just because, A, it's really rare that the same guy would excel at both jobs because they're two very different jobs. Uh, and B, I want the dude who is my manager focusing on manager shit. Like, where are my sponsorship money at? 
you know, where my contract at? I want my trainer focusing on just the nuts and bolts of, of MMA training stuff. I think it's better when, you know, you had that specialization. I don't think that it's necessarily unethical for one guy to do both. It just seems like maybe not the best idea. The next question this week comes from noted co-main event podcast emailer Brady Carlson. Oh, Brady Carlson. Should holding out your fingers be illegal? A perfect example of this was the UFC 158 fight between MacDessie and Crookshank. Crookshank wouldn't keep his fucking fingers closed in exchanges, and it was only a matter of time before he poked MacDessie in the eye. Should referees be policing this and telling dudes to close their hands? Should it be a rule? I can't stand seeing guys do this. It feels like dirty fighting to me. It is. And you know what? Uh, I saw MacDessie backstage, you know, minutes after he got out of the cage for that fight, and he was showing us, you could see the scratches, like, all up on his neck and shoulders and upper back and stuff. And he was saying how... You know, he knew that eventually he's probably going to get poked when the guy's coming at you with his hands open and he's pawing like that. Uh, and it changes the way you fight because you don't really want to get in there close with him if he's just throwing his fingers out there like that. I know uh, my friend Dan DeStefano, who's a big uh, kickboxing aficionado and, and jiu-jitsu guy and everything, he hates it when he gets so riled up about this issue because he says, you know, and it's a good point. There's no reason for you to be doing that. No reason for you to have your, your hands and your fingers splayed open like that, pawing in the area of the other guy's face. So it should be a thing where the referee tells the guy before the fight, don't go out there and do that. And if you do go out there and do it, you know, he should be telling you during the fight. And if you poke a guy when doing that, automatic point, because we've already told you not to fucking do it. Yeah. And it's just another situation in this sport where the rules are officiated in such a way that it gives guys the opportunity to really game the system where, you're right. There's no reason for them to have their fingers open like that. But until the foul occurs, there's like there's there's no oversight. It seems right. like I think Brady Carlson's right. It should probably be uh, the kind of situation where you can be warned even for for habitually doing it, I guess you could say. Yeah. Next question comes from Scott Cullen, who writes, I'm a Brit and I have uneducated friends. <laughs> <laughs> Take a number, Scott. Well, Don't one, we all? One might go so far as to call them. Uh, uneducated fools, as, as GSP would say. Uh, uneducated friends who do not know about UFC. If you had to show them one UFC fight to whet their appetite, so to speak, which one would it be? For the record, I'm thinking Brian Stan, Vanderlei Silva. Hmm. Uh, not a bad choice, I suppose, in, here in recent history. Yeah. These, I, when I get confronted with these really broad questions, I feel like it kind of makes my mind go blank. But I guess my initial reaction is, what about the fight with uh, the Korean zombie and uh, Dustin Poirier? That's a good one. And kind of had a little bit of everything. Yeah. You know, the one that uh, I finally won my dad over to thinking that MMA was legitimate. Because my dad was a big boxing fan and I always thought MMA was, you know, like like a lot of old-timey boxing fans thought just bar bouncers kicking each other in the nuts kind of thing. Uh, and then I showed him the second Matt Hughes, Frank Trigg fight, uh, one where, you know, Hughes actually does get kicked in the nuts, roughed up a little bit, then comes back, slams Frank Trigg and chokes him out. Uh, I showed him that fight and that's the first time when he was like, okay, this is kind of awesome. And now he watches the fights and everything. So I, I feel like maybe if you go, go a little further back, show him one of the classics, you might win him over. The next question this week comes from Brian. Seems people really like Hendrix's chance against GSP, but isn't he a left-handed version of Koscheck? Parenthetically, by the way, I hope Hendrix knocks GSP the F out. Also, what happened to Martin Campman? I know he got knocked out, but why was he not on the card, as well as Tarek Safadine? 
And then in parentheses, I know my spelling and grammar are terrible. I didn't go to college. Sorry, boys and mom. <laughs> okay. Well, that covered a little bit of everything. Uh, first of all, the one about Johnny Hendricks being basically just like Koshchek, because I've heard this one a bunch. It doesn't seem accurate to me, though. I feel no. like Johnny Hendricks' power alone that he that he has in his hand sets him apart from Josh Koshchek. I think so, too. I also think that if you're just going to compare amateur wrestling, like college wrestling credentials, Johnny Hendricks is better. You know, the better wrestler, the, probably going to be the better uh, defensive wrestler and maybe has a threat to, to put GSP down a little more than, than Koscheck did. Uh, but I guess, do you see GSP being able to go out there and pursue that same game plan against a guy like Johnny Hendricks, just jab the hell out of him? No, because at some point he's going to get punched in the face if he tries to do that, I feel like. And Johnny Hendricks has shown in the past, he punches you in the face one time. Mm, could be a fight changer. Whereas, I don't know, you know, Koscheck has that one highlight knockout against Yoshida. Yeah. Uh but you know other than that I don't think he's he's really had a fight where where you come away kind of blown away by the by the power in his hands whereas Johnny Hendricks has numerous instances where he just looks like a dangerous dangerous human being after after the fight is over in like 9 seconds or whatever. Yeah. And as for questions about Martin Campman, you know, yeah, he's been kind of up and down and up again recently. So in this division right now, you're going to have to string together a few wins. Uh, Derek Safadine, I think, uh, had an opportunity to take a, take that short notice fight that Marquardt ended up taking, uh, but felt like it was too short notice and just coming off of a, a fight himself and was trying to help his training partner, Dan Henderson, get ready to fight. So, uh, you know, in retrospect, maybe he made the right call there. Uh, next question comes from Kenny Horn, who writes, It was announced last week that UFC 164 will be Milwaukee for the Harley-Davidson hometown throwdown. Will you guys be picking up some leather jackets and Harley-Davidson motorcycles and riding across the Midwest like bats out of hell? It's only a 22-hour ride. Short answer, yes. <laughs> no, we're going the, to the dealership as soon as we're done here. The truth is you probably couldn't pay me enough to get me on a goddamn motorcycle. Everyone I've ever known who ridden who has ridden one has eventually crashed it. And I know deep down in the dark recesses of my own mind that I am exactly the kind of dude who would crash his motorcycle. Yeah. See, when most people on a motorcycle, I would think, hey, the problem is that even no matter how good you are at riding it, somebody else can always just fuck up and, and ruin everything for you. With you, I would think you're going to fuck it up. Yeah. No, I definitely would. Yeah. I'd be riding along thinking about something else. Yeah, you know? just empty stretch of road. Yes. You're going down. Lay that fucker down. <laughs> yes. Although I will say last year uh, I went to Milwaukee for the UFC that they had there uh, during 2012, and I thought Milwaukee was a hell of a town. Really actually kind of surprised me uh, how much I liked it. I thought it was uh, it was great. I do like a town that drinks a lot of beer, though, so you're kind There's of in my wheelhouse there. Another glowing Chad Dundas quote for the tourism poster Really kind of surprised by how much I liked Milwaukee, says Chad Dundas. <laughs> uh, the, the, there was a Brewers game going on when we were there. It was getting, it was getting over at like four or five in the afternoon and middle of the day pretty much. And downtown Milwaukee was fucking wasted. <laughs> nice. It was awesome. Nice. Anyway, the next question this week comes from Bob. He writes, I just read that Czech Congo opened up a European fashion boutique. Is that true? I don't know if that's true. That's awesome if it is. Uh, I've never seen his street duds, so I can't judge. Would either of you gents let Czech dress you, and how much would you be willing to spend? I would say yes, because I feel like Czech Congo pretty much always looks good. He does look good now that I think about it. Uh, he is European, so that checks out. Uh, 
I guess no. Here, here it is. I just, I just googled it. Uh, our boys at Middle Easy have something about Czech Congo opening up a fashion boutique. Uh, I gotta say, scariest fashion boutique in Paris or wherever it is. You know, uh, I think it's in West Hollywood. Oh. Uh, <laughs> well, never mind then. I, I gotta say, maybe that is the line of work for Czech Congo because, you know, aesthetically. Czech Congo seems like he has it all together. I mean, like, he looks like a really scary dude, but also, you know, kind of looks like a this fashionable dude. He's got the glasses. He's got the accent. He's got all that stuff going on. You know, if he fought as well as he – or, you know, as he looked as – He looks good getting off the bus, as yeah. a college football coach go. used to say when I interviewed him. Yeah. Uh, then, yeah, he'd be a world champion. Unfortunately, he does not. So maybe Fashion Boutique is the right line of work where all you have to be is, you know, just – looking good i guess my question about czech congo's fashion boutique would be if i go in there is it just going to be a bunch of really tight shirts with like fleur-de-lis all over yes. them? yes like skulls with wings mm -hmm. and jeans with bedazzle on the jeans on with, the back pockets with, yeah really intricate stitching patterns not on the back that. and if i want that stuff i can just go to tj maxx and get all the extreme couture shirts they've got there on the clearance rack and which you will do which i will do well if i'm going out to the clubs i don't want to look like an idiot no <laughs> no you don't when i'm up in the vip <laughs> yeah Anyway, uh, let's we got to do this Ariel Helwani segment. Oh, so, uh, do you want to tell us what this is about? But when we go into it, or do you feel like it's going to be self-explanatory? You know, let's just let's just do it. Let's just do it, and let's get it over with. All right. Well, here's a hint for you. It's coming up right now, and Sir Nigel Longstock is involved. So, hmm. it could be anything. <laughs> CME podcast is getting a little help from a friend because Chad, we got to live up to our terms of a bet that we made, an ill-advised bet. The listeners should maybe think of this installment as just a shame-filled rendition of Master Tweet Theater. Yeah, it's like Master Tweet Theater, only way worse for us personally. So what we decided to do, part of the terms of our bet with one Ariel Helwani that we had to do a quote-unquote segment dedicated to him. Uh, what we decided to do here was to have our good pal and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock, come on board and, much like Master Tweet Theater, he's going to read us five different quotes taken from different Ariel Helwani interviews over the years. The quotes are going to be from the interview subject, not from Helwani himself, because fuck that guy. Uh, and Chad and I are going to try and guess who... Ariel Helwani was interviewing when this was said. Chad, how do you feel about this? Strong. I have strong feelings about it, but I will not comment about whether or not I feel negative or positive. And Sir Nigel, uh, first of all, thank you for taking time out of your busy, busy schedule to, to help us with this. Thank you, sir. I feel wonderful. No shame whatsoever. Well, other than the normal amount of shame that you walk around with. No, no, none at all, sir. It's not medically possible. I also cannot taste paprika. <laughs> no, I did. I read that journal article about you. Uh, okay, so, Sir Nigel, when you're ready, I guess you're just going to go ahead and hit us with the first one, and uh, we'll, we'll give it our best shot. <clears throat> yes, let us begin. The first unidentified interviewee, interview object, if you will, of Mr. Ariel Helwani. <clears throat> Where did I learn it? 
I learned it, sort of a variation of it, in Japan, probably 30 or 40 years ago, and I've been perfecting it all these years. It's not exactly karate. It's just something that I created that's a little bit different that I thought Anderson could learn well because he's sort of a natural-born athlete. He has very quick hands and feet, and his kicks are good to begin with, so I started teaching him kicks that I thought he could really hurt people with. Chad, do you want to go first here? Um, I am going to guess a male Tokyo prostitute. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to go ahead and give the actual obvious guess, Sensei Steven Seagal. It was the karate that gave it away for me. You are correct. You are both correct, sirs. Sir Nigel, why do I get the feeling that that is not the first time you've pronounced karate uh, in the Steven Seagal fashion, which is to say, like a total asshole? Well, I'm sure you've noticed from my cat-like movements, sir, that I'm in fact a blue belt in karate. (laughs) The gentle art. (laughs) Indeed. All right. Onward we go. Response to second. It's all good. I see how you are. That's how you gotta be. It's not a problem for me. It's your job. It might not be a good thing, but I don't know. You get paid. You gotta do what we gotta do out here. Chad? Well, I think this one obviously comes from Ariel Helwani's excellent interview with former President Calvin Coolidge. Is this what you're gonna do? This is what you're gonna do the whole time? He appears to be funning you, sir. It could be. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. They just seem a little obvious to me so far. <laughs> oh, it's so obvious. Let's let's hear the correct answer, Chad. Um, is that Nick Diaz? Probably Nick Diaz. It is obviously <laughs> Nick Diaz. No sentence is longer than six words, and he's pissed. <laughs> <clears throat> it is Nick Diaz. I don't actually have the names for these, by the way. I'm just going with gut certainty. <clears throat> Question the third. Response the third. I'm a soldier, man. I roll by myself every time. It don't matter. These guys are clowns. David Gay, he pretended to be a fighter. And Bernard Hopkins. Man, you need to get your teeth fixed. I'll loan you one of those damn diamonds so you can replace the shit in your motherfucking mouth. I don't worry about these dudes. If they want to fight me, come see me. If you got a problem with me, come see me like I tell everybody else. (laughs) Well... This has been worth it just to hear Sir Nigel uh, go on this little tirade. Since Chad's already going, obviously going to give us a goof answer, I'm going to go ahead and say that's James Tony. It's too bad I already used my Calvin Coolidge <laughs> answer. I'm going to concur with you. I, I also believe this is James Tony. Calvin Coolidge was always telling motherfuckers to come see him if they had a problem and offering them diamonds. <laughs> Which, by the way, hold on. If you're loaning a person a diamond to put in their mouth. You're not really helping them get their teeth fixed. That's yep. that's a temporary solution there. James Tony gives you a diamond, and one week later, he comes over and knocks it out of your mouth. <laughs> it happened to his wife. Mm. <laughs> Come see me. <laughs> Come see me indeed. I, I will read this one especially dramatically, since I remember very clearly the moment it was first said. Mm. Response to fourth. You, you want to do it? <laughs> <laughs> Chad? Well, that is... Uh, uh, 
Brock Lesnar. Wait, no, that's the Undertaker that's taker, asking man. Brock Lesnar. Yeah, that's if the Taker. He in fact, wants to do it. The Taker asking if Lesnar wants to do it. Still don't know what it was exactly. Some sort of promo that Brock Lesnar did not want to do. He wanted to lie down with a sandwich, if I remember correctly. <laughs> the only thing clear about that was no. Brock Lesnar did not want to do it, whatever it was. Did not want to do anything. <clears throat> Response the fifth. What people don't know about fighters, we alphas. We the alpha male. Guys like this, they don't like alpha males. That's why they try to pick on us, because they're more intelligent and stuff than us. But that's all they got. I'm alpha, you know what I'm saying? We alpha. We do what we want to do. We mess around in a hotel. We get out of the car and fight at a red light if we want to. We alpha. Wow, that, now that, that was your best reading. I feel, I feel like it's a shame that we're finally at the end of this segment and you're kind of hitting your stride here. The capstone to a sadly beta acting career. <laughs> Chad, do you, do you want to take a shot at that? Well, I just want to say that I am surprised now, but the best part of this entire segment to me is the knowledge that I will forever be able to sample Sir Nigel doing these readings in the future. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure it's going to come in handy on your rap album. Yeah, we mess around at a hotel, man. You know, yeah. whatever. We alpha. We alpha. That's Rampage Jackson. Yeah. Yes. Obviously. Yes. Doing we alpha. Rampage Jackson. Well, the best thing, other than Chad being able to sample Sir Nigel, uh, is now this is over. Yes. We can say it's fucking finished. Fuck you, Ariel Helwani, and your corrupt Syracuse basketball team. So, Nigel, thanks for doing your part. Thank you, Sam. All right, Ben. Well, our first question to begin the second half of the show comes to us from Claire Hammond, and she asks, when and where did you two meet and become friends? I wouldn't call us friends. I'd say colleagues. Acquaintances. Yeah. Business Work associates. Friends. Yeah. Uh, we met in graduate school, the MFA writing program here at the University of Montana. Uh I believe uh, when we actually first met was even before school started because we were both uh, graduate teaching assistants, so they made us take like a, a week-long crash course, basically, that was supposed to tell us how the hell we were going to teach English to college freshmen, uh, which then we both, I'm sure, did poorly. Uh, but then we actually, we had to go to a, like a little gathering at one of the older teacher's houses uh, where they were going to give us the real inside scoop on it. Chad and I showed up at around the same time, and I had a big uh, brown grocery bag full of miscellaneous beers that I had cleaned out of my fridge, like just a bunch of different kind of beers stuffed into a bag, and Chad had a huge box of PBR. And that's when we were kind of like, yeah, okay, we're probably going to be friends. We were right. Acquaintances, at least. <laughs> uh, we'll ask your next question over there, friend. Um, <laughs> Next question uh, here comes from uh, Danny Fitz, who writes, Chad, imagine you arrive at the Folks residence this Saturday afternoon, only uh -huh. to find Ben knee-deep in his latest lifestyle piece. Could happen. Ben offers up two DVDs to keep you entertained while you wait. Lightweight fights that have taken place over the next six months. What? Maybe it means the last six months, or maybe it means somehow some kind of futuristic. I think he means DVD from the future. Okay, let's so say now that. now you have my attention. Yeah. DVD from the future of lightweight fights over the next six months and welterweight fights that have taken place over the next six months. So two future DVDs. 
Two different divisions. You only have time for one. Okay. okay. Which one do you pick? <laughs> ben, you can chime in on which division you are more excited about over the next six months, too, if you like. That is, if you're not busy writing a lifestyle piece, which I love, by the way. Keep them up. Oh, that's sweet. It really says that at the end. I no, it doesn't. Uh, you know, this is an interesting question because I would almost, at almost any other time in the history of mixed martial arts, I would take the lightweight DVD. But right now, I'm going to take the welterweight DVD because I feel like that division is just unbelievably stacked right now. And plus, if if I if I had my way, I'd make Johnny Hendricks and George St. Pierre fight right now because I, I that's maybe the fight I'm looking forward to the most coming up here in the next you know, six to eight months, hopefully, barring injury, knock on wood. Uh, and, and plus the welterweight division has all these really awesome guys right now. Carlos Condit is out there. Jake Ellenberger is out there. Uh, you know, Martin Campman, who we had a question about earlier. I feel like that division is just uh, teeming with talent right now, whereas that's just sort of business as usual down in the lightweight uh, ranks. So because this question comes along at such, such a uh, an interesting time in the welterweight division, I'm going to choose 170 right now. I'd say lightweight. Okay. Well, that's, I think that's valid. That's fair. Well, for one thing, I mean, I'm pretty excited about seeing uh, Benson Henderson and Gil Melendez, but I'd also make, I mean, as long as we're just reshaping the entire world the way we want it uh, with these future DVDs, I would also make uh, Anthony Pettis and Benson Henderson rematch. I'd forget that that featherweight title shot, which I think is still going to be interesting, but... Uh, so wait, now you're picking the fights that are going on the DVD? Sure. Too? Sure. I feel I, like that's uh, cheating. We're starting from a premise with a DVD that has the future on it. I don't think this is too much of a stretch. Sounds like a show that would be on NBC this in the during the fall season. And then immediately be canceled. <laughs> uh, the next question comes from Joshua Custodio. Tito Ortiz, Roy Nelson, and Mayhem Miller have been painted by Dana White as hard to work with. Is this just Dana's way of saying that he doesn't like certain fighters? From your firsthand experience, did you find these three difficult? Uh I have firsthand experience with Roy Nelson that I did, in fact, find difficult. I was supposed to write a story about him for a magazine, and uh, I chose him because at the time that at the time that that I was supposed to write it, I felt like he was a guy who was going to be easy to get a hold of and would be fairly accessible. This was before it became clear that if you ask Roy Nelson a question, he's just going to give some glib response that he came up with a week before. Yeah, uh, that's totally what he's going to do. It turned out that the opposite was true. Roy Nelson totally ghosted me and uh, didn't write the story, didn't get paid. So there you go. That's that's my firsthand experience with Roy Nelson. Uh, my firsthand experience with Tito Ortiz, the first time I met him, I was hanging out with our friend Brad. And uh, Tito Ortiz thought it was pretty much the funniest fucking thing in the world. that The two dudes he, were, he was meeting were named Chad and Brad. But it is, that's so just, there you go. That's just hilarious. There's, there's no arguing with that. I, th- I always wonder when I hear Dana Wade talk about the dudes who are tough to work with. Because he also says, you know, that Anderson Silva, that working with him is like working with an artist. That he's very temperamental and you never know what's going to happen. You know, maybe for if you're a fighter... To some extent, being difficult to work with from the UFC's perspective might mean that you're paying attention. Yeah. The dudes who are just like, yeah, sure, whatever, man. I'll take that fight for whatever you feel like it's fair to pay me. You know, that I'm sure would be really easy for the UFC to work with. Not really smart if you're a pro fighter. Yeah, I feel like a dude like John Fitch would be a better example of a dude that the UFC might think is hard to work with. Yeah, because he didn't want to sign away rights to his likeness forever. Yeah, or maybe even a Randy Couture. Uh these three guys that appear in this in this question, guys where maybe there's a valid point, although yeah. I know that you have a personal affinity for Mayhem Miller. Well, yeah, I like Mayhem Miller. And then, hey, Brad and Chad, come on. That I keep funny. thinking about it, and I'm that, trying not to laugh. That just is thinking about it. I'm just, I feel a chuckle coming up. Uh, next question comes from 
Kevin Plosky, who writes, When Hollywood decides to make a bio movie about a former or current MMA star, who should that fighter be? Hoist? Randy? Chris Lieben? Hmm. Well, Lieben's would be interesting. Is Walter Fox on the table? <laughs> Here's Could the, we get the rights to Bar Brawler? You know, I should mention this. Uh, my parents are staying with me this week. Came in, uh, flew in from Florida to, to see the new baby, all that stuff. Uh, and I gave my dad uh, my Kindle so that he could read Moneyball, which he really wanted to read. Uh, and then, unbeknownst to me, at some point, he blew through Moneyball and started reading Bar Brawler. <laughs> and he read the whole thing. Oh, uh, nice. What yeah. did your dad think? His opinion was kind of like ours in that he said, not as bad as it could have been. Yeah. Maybe we need to get him involved in the next book club. Maybe do we think? do. Yeah. I, he is a prodigious reader. I, I think the question about, you know, what what would attract Hollywood? First of all, it's either got to be somebody with who's a big, huge superstar. I mean, think how long it took to make a good Muhammad Ali movie. Uh or somebody who has, like, a really inspiring story, like Matt Hamill, who already has a movie about him. Okay, that feels like cheating. Well, I'm all, what I'm saying here is Chris Lieben would have to have some kind of huge major turnaround. <laughs> there would have to be some redemption, is yeah. what you're saying? Yeah, you need, you need some redemption in that story. How about a movie where terrorists take over the old mill I'm outside listening. of town okay. and laid off mill workers Dan Severn and Don Fry have to free the town from the clutches of the terrorists? So now we're just talking... Title of the movie, Iron Will. <laughs> Why do I get the sense that you have a script already in your desk here? You never know when the producers are going to call. And you have to do your pitch, your 30-second yeah, no. pitch. Success is where hard work meets opportunity. You know who would actually make kind of an interesting Hollywood movie would be Hicks and Gracie. You've probably – you've seen Choke, the oh, documentary. Yeah, yeah. If you haven't have seen on Choke, at all, home. all of you out there in, in co-main event podcast listener land, uh, an awesome documentary about an early Valet Tudo tournament in Japan that Hicks and Gracie competes in uh, during the early 90s. It's a really good documentary. Yeah. And also you get to see Gerard Gordou uh, totally almost put a dude's eyes out. Yeah. It makes you wonder where uh, – whatever happened to Todd Hollywood Hayes. I think he was actually on the bobsled team. He was. Uh, yeah. It, it, he won like a bronze medal I think at some point. Uh, this question is from Saran Mulryan. No idea if I pronounced that right. I'm going to say no. In football – Soccer to you crazy Americans. The biggest clubs sign highly touted youth players and loan them to feeder clubs when they can develop where they where they can develop from the first team experience. Not only does it allow the players to flourish, but it also allows them already to have these future stars signed. Should the UFC do something like this? Sign guys when they're 18 to 21 and have a deal with a few regional promotions. Let them fight for them and see who really becomes the standout. It's actually not a terrible idea. No, it's a good idea. And it's not so different from what happens with these Ultimate Fighter contracts when you think about it. The appeal for the UFC, I mean, maybe they're not always dudes who are super young, but uh, a lot of times it's a good way for the UFC to grab hold of some young up-and-coming talent, get them in a, a contract that is not necessarily uh, lucrative for the fighters right away, see who pans out, who doesn't. Uh, the guys who don't, then they go off to the regional circuit where they still have some kind of name value for, you know, a local promoter because people remember seeing them on TV. Uh, but then that also has made me think recently about the organizations that want to be semi big time but don't want to just be using UFC castoffs because the more guys who get cycled through the UFC at some point, the fewer good fighters there are out there who haven't 
had any UFC experience. Yeah, you know, it's actually it, – it is a pretty good idea as long as the UFC could keep on top of the enormous administrative nightmare that I assume that that would be, uh, especially now that they have these weekly live fight shows that they just announced that are going to be on one of the UFC on Fox – or I mean, one of the Fox Sports channels when they debut, uh, it seems like that's exactly the kind of situation you would want to be in, where you have a bunch of young, uh, hungry guys who maybe don't have names, and you could just kind of throw them out there on these weekly live fight shows and, and see who who comes out on top. It, in a way, it reminds me of what WWE does because WWE has this uh, network of developmental territories. I think Florida Championship Wrestling right now is their is their main one. So like they have not only all of the dudes that you see on TV on 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 Raw and SmackDown every week, but they also have all of these guys who are uh, in a, in essence independent wrestlers. And it sort of gives WWE vertical control over the entire industry because if you're an up-and-coming young professional wrestler, chances are WWE is going to sign you to a developmental deal, which is great for you because it gives you, a, a you know, in, in theory, I guess, a pipeline to the big time. But it's also great for WWE because you can't be signed by anybody else. So I don't know. It's an interesting idea, and I think it comes down to uh, how much time and energy the UFC would want to invest in that kind of vast uh, smaller regional promotion system. Yeah, it does sound like a pain in the ass to manage. Uh, next question comes from Josh Mawney, who writes, Given the recent news that a bearded priest has convinced Alexander Emelianenko to fight again, what would you guys give a better chance of happening? Alexander going on a killer win streak and becoming relevant, or God telling Fedor he should fight again? The latter, I guess? <laughs> How about this? How about if we had a third option? Fedor one day going to check his bank statement and realizing that M1 Global has stolen all his money and he needs to fight again. Which, that would be God telling him, right? <laughs> yeah. That he needed to get back in the cage or relight the fire a little bit. Yeah, God works in mysterious ways. I have to be honest with you that I haven't been as closely following the careers of Alexander Emelianenko as oh, I probably no. could be. So I don't know what his record looks like, but I feel like him putting together an extended win streak over anybody other than you know, a bunch of bar bouncers, uh, feels like more of a long shot to me than, than Fedor waking up one morning and realizing he's still got the, the fire. Yeah. Maybe it seems like, uh, Alexander Emelianenko would have been better off if he could have got in as a, you know, maybe a minority partner on Czech Congo's European fashion <laughs> boutique. Uh, from Ken Dane. I can understand Bellator not wanting to sign, quote, UFC cast-offs, but isn't there something to be said for name recognition? Couldn't someone with a solid name like John Fitch have helped the organization draw some casual fans to their broadcasts? You know, this is something I was thinking of while watching the World Series of Fighting because you got to find that balance somehow. You don't want it just to be... Like, hey, you remember these guys from the UFC? Well, they're not that good anymore as they used to be back when you knew them. But, you know, you still know who they are. So here you go. Uh, and then you got the guys up and coming who they might be totally awesome, but people don't know it yet. So you got to put butts in seats. You got to get people interested to begin with. You know, maybe you get them in there to see Andre Arlovsky because they – are still nostalgic about back when it was 2005 and he seemed like a monster. Uh, and then while they're there, they see, you know, Justin Gaethje or uh, Marlon Moraes or something. And, and they, they remember that for next time. It does seem hard to, to strike that balance. I mean, especially like we were talking about more guys keep coming through the UFC who have at least one or two fights in the UFC. And then they, they move on. Eventually you're going to get to a point when you can't just afford to take this blanket stance that, Hey, if you fought in the UFC at some point, we don't want you. Yeah, I mean, you just don't want to give Tim Sylvia eight hundred grand. 
No, you right? don't. That's where no, you start you getting not. into trouble. But I do feel like the UFC, uh, there are some guys that probably would be a benefit to Bellator, even though I understand where they're coming from for yeah. not wanting to be seen as the you know accepting all of the UFC's damaged goods, especially now that they have this spike deal where, uh, in theory, they're going to have a better promotional platform from which to build their own stars. Eh, well, I feel like when a guy who's still in his prime gets cut by the UFC, uh, that those are the guys you want to snap up. And in fact, getting a guy like John Fitch, I feel like makes a shitload more sense than say an Andre Arlovsky who's or just a Rampage a guy, Jackson or a Rampage Jackson. Exactly. Uh, the next question. Wait, is, isn't it my turn? Didn't you just read that one? I read the fade oh, order. All right, sorry, didn't mean to step on you, Son brother. Bitch. Go, go for it. All right, my question is from Torito, who writes. When Dana White eventually leaves the MMA world, would you like him to be replaced by someone with a similar personality or a more traditional slash professional CEO? Mm, tough question, man. Also, by uh, when Dana White eventually leaves the MMA world, is there any chance Dana White is leaving the MMA world uh, alive? Yeah, no, none. Although, you know, last, the only way he quits is he year, dies, right? Last year, yeah, well, you'd think. Although last year when they first started brokering this Fox deal and the number of shows went through the roof and the travel went up and he was he was struggling with his ear uh, disorder, whatever it is. Meniere's disease? Yes. Condition. His ear condition, as I like to call it. Uh, it seemed like for the first time the schedule was really kind of starting to wear on him. Uh, because I, you know, it seemed like he went to a couple of events when he had, like had a cold and, and he'd been in Brazil or all over the fucking world trying to figure shit out. And it seemed like for the first time you could kind of see maybe even in his own mind, this realization of like, Oh shit, you know, this is, I can't, I can't keep up this humor, uh, superhuman schedule forever. Uh, I do think though that he's going to do it as long as he, as humanly possible. And as for Torito's question, I think it's a really hard one to answer because, uh, I think that there are times when pretty much everyone in this industry wishes that the largest MMA promotion in the world was run by someone a little bit more uh, with a little bit more of a professional public attitude. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think you can deny how successful Dana White and with the Fertitta brothers backing uh, is an important part of it. Uh, you, you can't underestimate how successful those guys have been. Like they've essentially succeeded where no one else has. And is part of that because the Fertitas were the guys who were the most willing to go into debt in order to make it happen? Maybe. But also, I mean, Dana White, kind of lightning in a bottle type situation where they, I think, just happened to have the best possible guy that you could have had in that position for, you know, the, the genesis period of MMA. I think also, uh, like we mentioned, hey, there are times when we'd all feel like, It'd be better if there were somebody a little more low-key running things, somebody somebody a little more professional in charge. But then that wouldn't be as fun to write about. Think about all those those press conference scrums he does, all the times he sit down there and you can count on him to go off on some expletive-laden tirade. You know, David Stern's not giving you that. So there, there's there's an upside to it, too. The next question comes from Big Fat Polly. Nice. He writes, or she <laughs> writes, I became an MMA fan slightly before the Ultimate Fighter. When the internet used to resemble the Wild West, I was able to snag a couple of pride pay-per-views. I always admired the skill and violence of the fighters whose physiques resembled professional wrestlers Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff and The Rock, Don Morocco. Good Rock reference to the original Rock, by the way. Uh, knowing now what I, what I know now... Okay. <laughs> Looking back on the pay-per-views, a great number of the fighters there seem extra 
as the kids like to say nowadays, quote unquote, swole up. Every once in a while, I'll come across a story on the internets full of wild accusation, speculation, and conjecture, and not one damn shred of proof about supposed shenanigans that happened within an organization that had supposed ties to Japanese organized crime. More than supposed at this point. Uh, <laughs> seeing how you gentlemen have jobs that allow you to, quote, pull back the curtain and being privy to the inner workings of the MMA world, this question goes to both of you in two parts. <laughs> we haven't got to the question <laughs> no, yet? No, man, we're still going. First, what was the craziest story that you heard about Pride that you thought there was no way to be verified and later found out to be true? And second, what was the craziest story that you have heard about the organization that couldn't be verified, but according to a scant handful of people that swore again, as the kids say, it totally happened, dude? I'm confused. Uh, okay, for the first part, I think one of the craziest stories that turned out to be true was uh, Rafael Cordero uh, triangle choking Crazy Horse Bennett uh, backstage uh, at one of the Pride events. Yeah. And there was like video of it. Yeah. Because that was one we heard like, oh, Crazy Horse Bennett started this big brawl with the shooter box guys uh, backstage at a Pride show. It's like, yeah, okay. Uh, but no, and then that totally happened. I like the story where when the Nogiras were over there, there was there was some question about what the drug testing would be, and some pride guy just like showed up in their locker room with an actual like white paper Dixie cup and was like, "Here, just pee in this for the drug It'll test." It'll be fine. And yeah. they did that, and then they never heard ever again whatever happened with it. I assume the guy just like poured it in the sink. <laughs> uh, there's also numerous stories about dudes going out for sushi with uh, with yakuza guys. And uh, apparently when you do that, you just pretty much have to eat the sushi no matter how much of it there is or whether or not you like it or not because it will be considered a, a huge sign of disrespect if you don't. So basically these Japanese Yakuza guys think it's hilarious to go out and feed people sushi until they almost die. Uh, in the, and there's all kinds of stories like that. You know, There's the Mark Coleman-Takata fight, which at this point I think we all – no, was not on the level. Mm -hmm. uh, there's all kinds of shenanigans, so to speak. Here, here's a shenanigan. This one is not strictly pride-related, but more like Japanese martial arts-related. Um, and it involves uh, the noted photographer and videographer team of Esther Lin uh, and, and, and Casey Lydon, who, by the way, did some great work on the World Series of Fighting promos that then the World Series of Fighting people for NBC Sports used in baffling ways but if you saw the actual real ones that they posted on the web where they did like these kind of documentary style stuff uh really made the event seem more intriguing than it actually was so they're they're very talented but uh they told me a story once about i believe it was hideheki yoshida uh you know at some nightclub kind of thing in in tokyo uh and him seeing uh Esther there and he did not know that she was a photographer just thought that she was you know some some girl at the club um walked up to her licked her face and then stuck a uh you know basically a, the Japanese version of a hundred dollar bill in her pocket and walked away wow uh, and the right. story came from Casey you know uh, her boyfriend he was saying that at first you know thought hey what the hell and then you know, what are you gonna do you know if yoshida does that to your are you gonna walk up there and try and take a shot at him or something but then he said he looked at the, the size of the bill that that he had stuffed in her pocket and thought oh hey well you forgot the other side <laughs> awesome story all right uh my next question comes from chris who writes seems to be the popular view that using trt is cheating and bad for the sport but that's in all caps 
I remember when the first when the news first came out, there wasn't that many people or even fans speaking out about it. These days, everyone is quick to immediately bring the sledgehammer out when a fighter gets busted. I just want to say we give stick to people to people when they look out of shape, Roy Nelson, when they lack motivation, BJ Penn, or when they gas out in the second round, Kung Lee. As fans, are we being unreasonable as to what our expectations are of the fighters and how they look? I mean, let's be real. How many of us can consistently train two to three times a day and every day and eat rabbit food and not be tempted by getting a little boost? It's like what Matt Mitrione said, although he used it incorrectly, about having your cake and eating it. Unless the cake has baking powder or creatine. So this was or... a TRT question, though? Yes. Okay, for, well, for, for starters, yes, the life of the fighter is much more unbelievably difficult than probably many of us can imagine because the shit that they do is super fucking hard and does frankly wear out your body. And when dudes like Nick Diaz show up and say that he doesn't really like it, I feel like that's understandable. And I do feel like the public gives shit to guys sometimes when it's not warranted. That said, when you have a job to do and your job is to show up and fight for 15 minutes, and you're getting paid, eh, you kind of have to be able to be ready to show up and fight for 15 minutes. I don't know how that relates to the TRT question, except to say, yeah, TRT is cheating, and no, we're not bringing out the hammer when it's unwarranted or whatever was said. Well, I think, it, I mean, I, I agree that TRT now has become a, a much different issue than it was at first, because I think the, the fans have gotten more educated about it. Uh, people are, I, I mean, I think it became this thing where, uh, a couple of people tried to use it and say, hey, this is legitimate medical treatment. And then the the spotlight stayed on it for long enough that now it is tainted in a way that it wasn't before, which I think is a right. good well, thing. Nate Marquardt showed up the first time and did Ariel's show the next day. There you go, Ariel. There's your plug. And, <laughs> and was like – and made it sound like a legitimate medical condition. I think a lot of people were like, oh, this – Seems like a legitimate medical condition. Then when Shale Sonnen starts showing up with his doctor in his ribbed t-shirt at, yeah. the, at the NSAC <laughs> meeting talking about how uh, he gets to use TRT because of the American with Disabilities Act, which is one of the things they said at that initial yeah. meeting. And Frank Mir, a guy who once said that he could gain weight just by looking at a set of weights, uh, now suddenly needs TRT, you know, stuff like that. So I think that it's good that uh, fans have changed the the attitude toward TRT by by speaking out against it and saying, like, no, we think this is cheating, and now it becomes a thing where guys don't want to be associated with it. Uh, I think that that's better for everybody. Also, the argument, though, that we've heard before from people, I think we heard it before from Ken Shamrock, like, hey, you guys want us on steroids. You know, you want this because you want us to come out here looking like these, you know, ripped Adonises and, and beat the hell out of each other. So you're as complicit in this as we are. I just don't buy that. I mean, we don't want that. I think that we would prefer, and, you know, obviously you can't speak for absolutely everybody, but I think the majority of fans would prefer a clean sport than a bunch of six-pack abs. I mean, if that's what it meant, that, hey, you know, dudes quite, aren't quite as explosive or they don't look as good getting off the bus, as Chad Dundas would say, uh, but we can be assured that it's clean and fair, I think that that's what we would prefer. Because the thing about it that's cheating is not so much that it makes you better, but that everybody says these are the rules this is what you can do this is what you can't do if some people get to do something that other people don't get to do it's not fair it's it's not that the substance is inherently bad it's that it's cheating to allow some people to have an advantage that other people don't get question from dano ben folks are you related to the giants pitcher alan folks i don't it, think so it'd be pretty sweet if you were dude used to give me pitching lessons uh question from ben howell which he says is pronounced ben howell 
So there you go. All right. Uh, Ronda Rousey and Misha Tate or Kat Zingano will be hosting the Ultimate Fighter Season 18. This season will feature both male and female 135-pound fighters. First, do you think a co-ed cuff, do you think a co-ed tough will be enough of a twist to boost the ratings? Secondly, isn't it a bit of a conflict of interest for the coaches to be training women who fight in their own weight classes? Yeah, actually, a little bit. It's a little weird. It's a little bit strange. Uh, you know, and maybe they will get a boost to the ratings with this with this twist. Although I feel like this twist is the this is the last straw, right? Like once you do this, once you put women and men together in the house, you've officially done everything you could possibly do with this show's format. And for God's sakes, after season eighteen, let's do something else. Like, for instance. 115-pound men versus 115-pound Siberian Huskies? Just stop it. Just stop it. Uh, hey, you say you won't watch, but you will. <laughs> you will. Uh, from Dan Seinfeld, what's the deal with groin strikes? Well, I see what he did there. Back when they were legal, guys like Joe Sun could take 20 or 30 shots straight to the pills without batting an eye. Now you can't even knee a guy one time without it causing a no contest. Have testicles really become that sensitive over the past 20 years, or is something else going on? <laughs> wow, some, uh, alleging some kind of vast conspiracy against testicles? I don't know. It's a good question. Maybe guys are just, well, you'd say guys are trying to take a break, but no one ever takes their five minutes. So no, you know that's never, not true. Never happens. Not to mention when you're the dude who gets kicked in the nuts that somehow makes, ends up making you look bad, you, whereas you, the dude pussy. who punted you in the, in the nuts usually wins the fight. Just walks around with his hands up in the air like, I don't know what this dude's problem is. <laughs> uh, question from Taylor. Having seen Anthony Johnson compete at welterweight, middleweight, light heavyweight, and finally heavyweight, what weight class should he compete in? Uh, super heavyweight? Yeah. Maybe uh, cruiserweight? Yeah, there you go. Weighed in at the cruiserweight limit this past week. Yeah. I think light heavyweight is probably the best place yeah. for Anthony yeah. Johnson. Uh, from Steph Boyton Hewis. Sorry. Yeah, it's not that I'm, easy, I'm, is I'm, it? No, I'm sorry. Uh, and then actually says, I hope Chad will slaughter my last name. Uh, Boom! So, sorry. <laughs> uh, Steph asks... When is the next CME book club? Of course, I have not read Bar Brawler, even though you endorsed the shit out of it. We did not. Uh, but I enjoyed the book club so much that another installment would be great. No. First of all, Steph, you're not even going to read the fucking book, and then you're going to try and get us to do another one? What kind of shit is that? We'll do another book club when Steph reads Bar Brawler. How about that? <laughs> no, the, I mean, we are going to do another one. We just haven't talked about what book we're going to do or when we're going to do it. We've had some other stuff going on in our lives babies and whatnot and whatnot but uh we are we did we had a fucking great time doing the book club so we are going to do and that we have again. i have had a lot of people ask me about that and even suggest some potential book titles uh i guess the problem is most of the books that have been suggested i just i really don't want to read and i'm not reading the next two installments of tank abbott's series i'm just not doing it from Tony G, how do you guys feel when the camera pans to the family of a fighter after their loved one has been knocked out you know, actually, uh, Bellator did that uh, pretty recently, and I feel like, yeah, that is it's painful and a little uncomfortable, but uh, I don't necessarily feel like we should be spared that. I think that it's good for us to be reminded of that. That there are f actual physical human consequences? Yeah, and that uh, it is different to watch somebody who you actually like and care about go out there and get beat up rather than, you know, just some dude who's just a name and a, and a fight card to you. I... I I think it's good for us all to be reminded of the human consequences of this crap every once in a while. Um, from James Hawkins, with the recent announcement of Google Reader shutting down, I've been reevaluating how I should consume my daily MMA news. 
I'm curious, how do you both keep up to date with what's happening in MMA? Has Twitter become your main source, or you, do you prefer to visit your favorite websites on the regular? Is there some su- super secret newswire that MMA, MMA journalists get access to before stories break? First of all, I don't know what Google Reader is. What? Or how someone would use it. What is that? Well, I guess I don't need to know now if it's shutting down. But Jesus Christ. What is it? You know what, man? And explain it to me later. Yeah. Uh, I look at the websites and also at Twitter because un- as unfortunate as it is, that's the fucking ticker tape these days of the of the MMA news community. I have a thing. I don't know exactly what the website's called, but it's like a uh, kind of frequently updated newswire kind of thing that – uh, trolls the internet for MMA-related headlines, and you can just see the headline and the news source, and then you can click on it and see, you know, what the... And it also shows you what the past top stories have been. Uh, so that's actually quite helpful, even though every once in a while, whatever algorithm it uses to figure out if an M- a headline is MMA-related uh, will sometimes get it hilariously wrong. Um, but, uh, yeah, I use that. I also use Twitter, and I have a couple few reliable MMA websites that I read to, to kind of keep up with it. But, hey, you know... I work for MMA Junkies on top of fucking everything, so that's pretty easy for, for me to stay on top of it. I don't have to go read too many different websites. Uh, we're almost out of time, but from Chris for Ireland. Chris from Ireland. If you guys were bookmakers, what fighter would you have as the favorite to become the first to simultaneously hold two UFC titles in two weight classes? And he provides us a list where I think his odds are actually pretty good. He says John Jones, 6-4, to four, Jose Aldo, 7-1, to one, Anderson Silva, 8-1, to one, GSP, 10-1, to one, Henan Burrell, 14-1, to one, and then it goes on from there. I think that those are probably your top picks. Uh, I'd say John Jones is probably a pretty good pick if they allow people to do that. It yeah. seems like that's the real... Uh, the real uh, thing inhibiting that is that the UFC doesn't really want that to happen. Yeah, that would be my guess too. And I would say that if they were going to allow somebody to do it, they might allow somebody from one of the lighter weights to do it. Um, so in that vein, I would say Jose Aldo. Uh, here's one that, uh, well, I'm sorry, uh, from Ezekiel Van Nistelrooge. Fake name. Andre Arlovsky wore tape-covered UFC gloves in World Series of Fighting 2's main event. Seriously? The fucking main event? Are you fucking kidding me? On Saturday. Yeah, so say some shit about that. <laughs> that is pretty Bush League. I saw some people on Twitter being like, oh, the UFC is going to sue World Series of Fighting for this. And I was like, why the shit would they do that? It just gives Dana White fucking ammunition for the rest of time. Anyone ever asks him about World Series of Fighting, all he has to do is be like, oh, you mean that promotion that used our gloves in their main event? That pretty much answers that question, right? Yeah, and it looked like they tried to cover up one of the gloves uh, and then the other one clearly has the UFC logo just like I just went, nah, screw it. You know, and the thing is, he's fought for World Series of Fighting before. He wore World Series of Fighting gloves in his other fight. So we know that they make him in Andre Olovsky's size. What the hell? It's like, I mean, even though it doesn't really actually matter, when you can't be troubled to get little details like that right so as not to make you look like, you know, some dog and pony show – it does not bode well for your your future in the MMA business. That's about all the time that we have. We got through as many questions as we could. Sorry if we didn't get to yours. We'll do another edition of All Questions Considered at some point in the future. As for next week, we will be back. We'll talk about the next upcoming UFC show, which is the thing with Alexander Gustafson, right? Yeah, you man, you're really on top of this stuff. You must read Twitter and Google Reader and all this stuff. <laughs> Use Google Reader to stay on top of this stuff. Uh 
probably by now you're hearing the sounds of Ariel Helwani's taco stand music playing us out. So Just let it play, man. Let it play so people can get an idea of how terrible this music is. As for now, that's the show for this week. We're done. We're through. We're out. So seriously, let's, let's Google it. All right, first let's start. Have you heard of this thing called Google Mail? Yes. Start yes. There. Yes, I have a Google Mail internet account. <laughs> okay. Well, you're on the right track. Websites, so like it shows like